Thank you for joining us for the next hour or two in this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast. In an age of nearly limitless content, we appreciate that you're choosing to take valuable time out of your day to learn more about what is happening in Myanmar. It's vital for this story to be heard by people around the world, and that starts right now with you. Today we're going to be delving into the exciting and unsung world of trade data. And my guest today is uh, Savannah from the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. And this is a topic that we, we tangentially touch on uh, from time to time, but I don't think we've ever had a guest on who's able to go into quite as much detail as, as you're going to be. So before we get into that, uh, Savannah, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on. And I'd like to give you the chance to introduce yourself for our audience. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to get to have a captive audience for the trade data discussion. But my name is Savannah Slaughter. I'm an investigative researcher for the human security team at C4ADS, also known as the Center for Advanced Defense Studies, where I lead our investigative work on Myanmar. Okay, and so let's let's talk about C4ADS because um, I think probably our, our audience is not uh, particularly familiar with with the organization and what you guys really do. What's your what's your primary focus and, and how did C4ADS come about? Yeah, so we're a Washington DC-based nonprofit that uses publicly available information to investigate illicit networks as they pertain to global security and human rights abuses across the world. So we don't just operate on human security, although my team does, but we work in various issue areas such as national re- natural resource security, wildlife crimes, as well as more national security derivative issues such as China, Russia, Iran. So incorporating a bunch of publicly available information, which I'm sure I will delve much more into to help expose these networks and then take impactful actions working with government actors on the ground, authorities, civil society organizations, to take capacity building efforts or work any way we can to stop these networks. Okay. And so it sounds like you have a, a reasonably broad, even global uh, sort of remit. So as, as concerns more specifically the Myanmar uh, sphere, uh, what is it that you guys are really sort of focusing on? What are, you, what are you really doing there? Yeah, of course. So we have two main investigative lines of effort going on with Myanmar right now. The first and probably 
foremost effort we're looking at is tracking military procurement. So how the junta stays in power and continues gaining military supplies via its relation to transnational networks and the international supply chain. So that ranges from looking at how Western goods and products end up slipping into the supply chain and inevitably helping out the junta to other state actors such as China, India, Russia, and their deliberate efforts to continue aiding the Tatmadaw. We're also looking at illicit financing and assets, which that's kind of twofold as well. So illicit financing, looking more so at in-country crony financing, crony conglomerates, as well as the industries and ways in which the Tatmadaw is able to continue financing their war efforts. So looking at Myanmar oil and gas enterprise, as well as natural resources such as teak or jade, and then also looking to see if we can identify assets abroad. So far, that's looked primarily at Australia, and I hope by the time this episode comes out, we'll have some public work on that, which that might have to be reserved for a later mm-hmm. podcast episode, but some some really exciting things moving forward. I think we've really consolidated our Myanmar work over the last year and a half. We've had some ad hoc lines of effort, I think going back to 2016, where we published a report called Sticks and Stones that looked at Rohingya hate speech on Facebook. And we've also worked with the Center for Information Resiliency on the Ocelli Project, which is an interactive visual map that captures Rakhine burn sites. So kind of a wide ranging variety of work on the subject, as well as working with journalists and other civil society organizations to upskill investigative methodology, because we want to make sure that this is not just us providing investigative effort against the junta, but facilitating that on a much higher level as well. Excellent. And I mean, there, there is a long list of different things that you're, you're touching on there, and I want to get into pretty much all of them in turn. But be, before we get into that, let's sort of look at the methodology, because we have a lot of people who will come on and they will say, well, I've got you know information coming from on the ground. I've got people sending me photographs and, and video, and I've got all these types of, of evidence. You work predominantly with I mean, printed word on on sheets and and uh, tables of of numbers. What what is the the really the raw data that you're gathering? Looking at where do you get it from, and how can you really utilize that? Yeah, that's a great question because publicly available information is such a new and broad category of investigative data. You're right; it's very different than traditional on the ground human rights defenders pulling information. It's, it's tricky because publicly available information differs wildly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And some jurisdictions are much friendlier than others. So when we say publicly available information, we mean things that the public can access, but are also paid resources. So essentially corporate data, judicial data, trade data, property records, all of that. And say in the United States, it's really easy to find that information. You have searchable records for judicial information. You have corporate records that are easy to access, property records that are easily searchable. And this might not be surprising to anybody who's listening, but that data is not so easily accessible in Myanmar. For example, even just corporate data is incredibly hard to find these days because Two and a half years after the coup, so around last September, the Myanmar government took down most identifying information that you could find on the corporate registry. 
So it went from you could access officer information, the last three digits of the NRC number for cross confirmation. You could see principal place of business, documents that had been uploaded, and they took all of that down. So unfortunately, these corporations can just act totally in secret. Now we have no window into that besides previous examples from when we were able to scrape the data. And as you can imagine, there's not a searchable property registry within Myanmar. That data is extremely difficult to find. So we're also fairly reliant on leaked data as well, which there's a number of incredible on-the-ground organizations and activist-type actors who are doing really incredible work helping bring some light to a data-scarce environment. So I, I want to talk about that because I... I have come across some of the data leaks, uh, some of the corporate data leaks, like I've, I've seen them myself. And what I was shocked by, although perhaps I should not have been shocked by this, uh, but what I was shocked by and what I know many of my colleagues were very frustrated by was looking at this data leak going, this is not digitized data. This is a, a photocopy of a handwritten document. And and the um, basically the, the software that would recognize the characters that would be able to turn that into a, a type of PDF that you could just hit control F and you can find the names that you're looking for uh, is, is not even sophisticated enough yet to be able to, to really pour over that. Are you, are you finding that situation where you're looking at documentation? That's just, even if you have it, it's very, very difficult to process. It's very, very difficult to get through all of it. Or are you mostly dealing with information that is digitized and, and can be searched? I have to say that one of the big strengths of C4ADS is that we are a transnational working organization. So we also have our own data team, which is incredibly fortunate. We have a platform that we utilize internally that allows for the OCRing, so text recognition of documents that we upload, as well as cross-jurisdictional search functionality of all of our data holdings. So when we acquired the leaks, we were able to digitize OCR them. So that way, when we're conducting investigations and searching, for example, for a name of a corporation, it will also pull out names within those leaked data sets. And that makes our lives a lot easier. But I will say, like everything else, Burmese is incredibly difficult to OCR. So the place that we get the luckiest is there's a number of English-lettered spellings of companies in these various leaked documents so mostly that's where we'll get lucky in flag data but if you for example had a bunch of handwritten records that is something that we really wouldn't be able to ocr so you'd have to continue to come up with some creative ways to work around this because yeah it's it's definitely tricky and even other leaks like the enwa bank leak are in tricky file formats to bulk analyze so we do our best with it and apply whatever creative data solutions we can. But yeah, even even in these situations, it can be tough. Mm. And even just in this in this sort of beginning of the discussion, it's, it's already something that stands out to me as a, a pertinent question because we all understand the concept of data. But when you when you tell me about publicly available information about a company, if, if I wanted to find out, for example, uh, about Google or YouTube. Uh, I remember I was having a, a discussion with a friend of mine you know, a few weeks ago, and we thought this decision that this company has made, this new product that they've rolled out or this change that they've made, 
surely this will not be beneficial to the company. And so we tried to jump in and we tried to see, okay, what percentage of the revenue comes from these types of sources or how has revenue changed over time? And we found that that was very difficult to find. A lot of the publicly available corporate information is pretty basic stuff, like where is the company registered? What is its official name? What is its you know, tax number? Who are the, the directors of the company? Things like this, but not really a super deep, dive into the internal workings, their org charts, all their employees, all the locations that they own, um, their revenue streams and their finances and things like this. How much insight can you really gain uh, from the just the publicly available information into these companies? It really depends from company to company, which feels like a cop-out answer, but unfortunately it's true because it really ranges from you might find a tiny company listed that for whatever reason becomes apparent to you that it's a shell company. But if you're setting up a shell company, you're not going to set up a website. You're not going to have annual reports. You're probably not going to be on social media. And in that case, it's very, very limited what we can figure out about them. We can identify, for example, officers and try to connect it to a broader corporate network. That might be my best bet. But other than that, you're not likely to gather too much data. If you're looking at a much larger organization, say a publicly traded one, your options are a little bit better. Companies, especially the larger ones, publish annual reports and meeting minutes that cast a surprising amount of insight into what an organization is up to, the things they discuss, their upcoming plans. Um, you might find other agreements with other companies, media mentions, Social media data such as LinkedIn or Facebook can provide either more corporate information and insights to what their priorities are. For example, if they're big on social impact and they're posting over and over about all the good things that they're doing, but then you see in trade data that, oh no, like they're actually supporting the Tomada, that's kind of problematic, but an interesting comparison. So I think that's probably, this is a good question because it points to the key takeaway that you can't operate with a single data source ever, basically. You have to combine it with the other resources we have and really try to maximize it. All of this data fits together to form a puzzle and working through the other types of publicly available information. And then in certain cases, particularly with Myanmar, slotting this in for leaked information or defector human sources as relevant. But at least in that case, you have a lead of some kind and that helps narrow it down. So, all right, so, th so this is interesting. And uh, take me there, right? You said you look at this company and then you go through their trade data and you see that they're supporting the Tamado. What does that look like? How, like, I assume that you wouldn't just be looking through lines and lines of transactions and there's a line saying, you know, bill for 200 assault rifles to military regime. Like that would be far too on the nose. What does it look like for you when you suddenly hit that moment and you realize these guys are, are running a front for the military. Yeah, well, let me, I guess, take it back for a second in terms of what we have access to in terms of Myanmar trade data, because unfortunately, as you may have gathered with what we spoke about just now with scarcity of data in Myanmar, Myanmar doesn't publish their trade data either. But what's fortunate about this is we can still get a sense of what Myanmar trade data looks like based on what we call near trade data. So that is 
when Myanmar is conducting an international transaction with another country, that data is captured in the other end of the transaction, if that makes sense. So for example, if you're conducting trade with India, uh, import to Myanmar is recorded as an export from India. So that transaction will be captured in Indian trade data. So basically the reverse, the flip transaction is captured on the other end. So we see that with really good trade data sources, such as the United States, India, but unfortunately, there's some jurisdictions that we really don't have insight into because if that jurisdiction's not publishing trade data and Myanmar's not publishing trade data, there's very little way we can see that. And unfortunately, like China is one such jurisdiction. I mean, you wouldn't be able to capture any flows from North Korea besides getting lucky with like very limited leaked or released Myanmar trade data that I don't know if we've ever particularly been able to to discover the true sourcing of, but we typically work with third-party trade data aggregator platforms, and there's two main ways we can go about looking at this. There's some search functionalities that you could literally just type in directorate of procurement, and you'll be able to see all the recorded shipments that have gone to the director of procurement. This is a pretty pretty basic <laughs> workflow, I'd say. So a lot of a lot of these shipments have been spotted and identified, and I think have been a pretty good starting place for a lot of investigations. But that's what forces creativity on their side, and then in turn our side as well to identify these further shipments. But after that, you can filter, I guess, more by goods descriptions or HS codes, which I can speak about what that, what that means as we get into more detail about what we're actually looking at with the raw trade data. But there's a number of different ways we can start taking a look at this to answer so, your question, yes. Yeah, but just, just on this mirror trade data, like, I, okay, so I understand the concept when it comes to international, but I'm wondering, does that phenomenon of that mirror exist domestically? Because presumably, even if two companies are exchanging something, both companies will have a mirrored record of that exchange. Do you ever have a situation where one company has tried to hide a transaction, but the other company has failed to hide it or, or they didn't think to hide it and you still have that domestic lead that, well, one company was engaged in something uh, and the fingers are pointing to this other entity, even though that entity is staying silent? Yeah, I think that's a tricky case because it really varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction in terms of what you can or can't strike from trade data. Some jurisdictions let you remove your name entirely. In some cases, as we will talk about with the piece that I just collaborated with Frontier on, you can literally fill in an obfuscated consignee, in that case, the master. But there's other indicators in trade data that will allow you to get hints of who the ultimate receiver actually is. I think one of the bigger things that ends up obscuring a lot of shipments is freight forwarding, where you literally just hire another company to handle all of your shipping needs, and they will often be listed as both the shipper and the recipient on trade data, which offers basically zero insight into who is actually buying or receiving the product. And so in that case, you don't even have to go through the trouble of getting yourself removed on one end of the trade data. But 
there's things that we can look for to get around it. Unfortunately, this is tied a little bit to luck. But for example, there's one column on trade data that says notify party. Mm-hmm. And occasionally the notify party will be different than the actual recipient. And that can be a clue of who else is involved in the transaction. It's, of course, you know, like everything else, you have to apply a certain degree of critical analysis and not just make assumptions based on what you're seeing. But I've had cases where the named recipient was a completely nameless shell company, but their notify party was a much bigger Vietnamese company. And then I was able to pull records for both companies and end up linking them together based on a legal representative. So there are cases where people slip up, even if they're trying to obscure it, but you can't rely on that in every situation at all. So, okay, so so paint a picture for me here, um, just of the sheet of data you're looking at, because you've used some phrases here, notify party, master, consigner, consignee. Um, First question is, when you look at trade data, is it generally standardized across the board what types of entries there are for this uh, for, for this piece of information, or does it completely depend on the just the jurisdiction? And secondly, what do these words mean? Like, what's a consigner and a consignee and a notify party and a master and so on? <laughs> yes, no, happy to address those questions. Um, no, so it's not standardized across jurisdiction to jurisdiction, although. There are things that remain very similar across jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So, for example, I guess the words I've been throwing around, consignor, consignee, are pretty standard across all forms of trade data, although you might have their other names. So a consignor is the shipper, the person who's sending it, and the consignee is the recipient. So you might have words such as shipper and recipient on the trade data instead of consignor or consignee, but they all have the ultimate same meaning. You'll also typically have goods description, which will have a description of what's in the shipment. And I hate to say this over and over for every type of data, but truly this ranges from being as detailed to have serial numbers for products on it to people can just leave it blank or can put in incorrect information or just the most vague things imaginable. And then we'll also typically have dates on shipments. And then the other most common thing is what we call an HS code. So HS codes at the global level are six digit codes that basically serve as a classification system for goods. And you'll start off in a section. So for example, minerals. And then as you add progressive numbers to this code, you narrow it down more and more and more and more. So by the time you get to say HS code 2710, that denotes petroleum oils and oils obtained from bituminous minerals other than crude oil. Not that I'm an oil expert or can tell you exactly what that means, but it's signaling that you're looking at a specific type of oil at that point, and you can narrow it down progressively further. And so that really helps when we're trying to look at things from a top-down analysis and functionally sort just by goods instead of looking at individual bad actors of interest. So when you say the goods description can be falsified or it can be left blank, is the HS code easily falsifiable or is there some verification that means that you can trust that the HS code is accurate? From what I understand, it's typically classified by 
the importer, but I think like all data, you can't take anything for granted. I think it's designed for the licit legal world. So it's not always equipped to handle people with bad intentions. For example, even dates on trade records, you can't take for certain because you might look at it and say, oh, well, this was shipped on January 15th. Like, that's great. That's clear. But that's that's not even a given. For example, India could put in dates different than Russia because it might be that they're putting in bulk dates for a whole bunch of shipments at the same time. So they're saying, okay, we're just classifying all of these documents. We're putting them all in on January 15th, and they're all getting the date January 15th. So as hard data and I guess reliable as trade data can seem on the surface, it's really good to not necessarily take it as a truth. It's good to always be critical and thoughtful. And unfortunately, if we were seeing things like falsification of HS codes, it would be probably really hard to tell. I mean, especially if you have things in containers, because there's no visual way to confirm that. And, you know, this could range from a number of things, corruption at ports or people falsifying documents. I mean, there's a lot of ways to try to mess with parts of the system. So I would say by and large, it's not super likely, but it's definitely a possibility. So this raises an important question to me. Are these documents legal documents? Because if, for example, we were looking at a, a bill of lading, right? The, the, the effectively, you know, the shipping um, list of stuff that you're sending, like that's, as far as I know, a legal document and it can be used and it will be used by the government for, among other things, tax purposes. If you are falsifying the goods that you are sending, the therefore the taxable nature of the goods that you're sending, the quantity of the goods you're sending, the value of the goods you're sending, you are risking uh, cheating the government out of its taxes and governments hate that. And yet it sounds like these trade data are taken so lackadaisically that you can falsify what financial year, what financial quarter the thing was sent on. You don't, from from the thing that you listed, you didn't list any section that actually gives the stated financial value of the goods being being sent. What, what is this, these, these documents? Like, what are these trade data? Are they legal documents? Is there any theoretical verification? Would they be used by the tax office of the government? Yeah, so I'm not a lawyer, so unfortunately I can't speak to whether or not this is considered to be a legal transaction or if you would be held liable for any modifications made at a port. But I know that at least in terms of investigations and cross-corroborating this or proving that people are not doing what they say they're doing, partners have worked with leaked documents, such as when Amnesty International was able to obtain information showing the true transaction records on jet fuel shipments that weren't being captured in trade data, or there's even been legal ramifications where people were falsifying shipments, such as in Singapore, I think a couple men were held accountable for trying to mislead international business partners about where military grade sonar equipment was actually going. So it's definitely a risky thing 
to be doing. I think, unfortunately, though, if you think about it in Myanmar, if you were falsifying import records for military purposes on behalf of the military, what authority figure is going to hold you accountable for that? So that's why it's really dangerous to have these whole illicit networks. It's not just one bad actor. It's typically a whole series of them all working in concert, which makes it really dangerous. But we just try to do what we can and apply some critical analysis. Wait, let's go in an important direction here, because you, you're talking about um, sonar equipment here. And, and horrifyingly, I know this is an old problem because there was an episode of Yes Minister that, that spoke exactly about this back in the 1980s the obfuscation of the end user for military equipment and the way that military equipment can be funneled to users that are even enemies of the state that is supplying the the equipment. You mentioned as well uh, earlier in this interview that you were looking at um, Western products that are, are winding up in the hands of the Myanmar military. Is there an element of sanction busting going on like are you looking at and i know you've said that you're not a lawyer i'm not i'm not asking you to, to necessarily give me a, a deep dive on international <laughs> trade law but i it sounds like you're looking at at criminality you're looking at someone who is taking goods from one jurisdiction and moving it to another jurisdiction when the supplier would not consider that to be a a lawful end user uh, is is that actually something that you're investigating and looking at? Yes, it definitely is. I think sanctions evasion is one of the bigger things that we try to take a look at. I mean, we work closely with government partners, so any information that we find on this can go directly to authorities who can take action on this or consider it in potential sanctions packages. But it is fairly tricky to identify um, and there's of course the different standards required to meet it and it gets especially complicated if you have multi-jurisdictional companies as i'm discovering trying to look to see what eu sanctions apply across a variety of different assisting actors and i hope this is something that will will be coming out in a few months so we might have more to talk about then but yeah, it's it's certainly one of the things we try to take a look at because it's a place that we can hopefully stop and have an impact on the system. Whereas other jurisdictions, it's obviously important to point out how Russia or China are interacting with Myanmar, but that's something that we can have, I think, much less of a tangible impact on. I mean, and it also goes the other direction, for example, looking at natural resources coming into the United States from Myanmar, particularly teak has been the one that I've looked at. But there's sanctions evasions going both directions as well. So that's definitely something that's fairly important for us to try to spot if we can. And that's, that's an interesting one, because we, we have had uh, people who come on and they talk about specific goods. We've done an entire episode on on the illicit teak trade. And uh, we, we've definitely had, you know, people come on and talk about rare earth metals and logging and, and uh, you know, jade and gemstones and, and things of this nature. So it, it, it seems like there's a two-way trade happening here where even Western countries that are part of, theoretically are part of, of sanctioning regimes, are both supplying and receiving uh, from 
from Myanmar. And I'm just wondering, do you have an insight as to where did the system break down? Like, this should not be occurring. Is it the case that you have parties in the West proper who know that they are supplying to or purchasing from the junta? Or is it more that the junta has really good um, front businesses in third-party countries and they are taking advantage of, you know, Western entities who are in good faith believing that they are purchasing things that were produced prior to the coup, that were warehoused, or that are just purchasing from some innocent Singaporean company? Like, do we know where the, the point is at which someone did something that they know they should not have been doing? I think the answer is probably both are true. I think, for example, since I've looked into teak pretty closely, I can say that some of these major teak importers in the U.S. publish on their website that they claim that they've been working in the teak industry for 10, 20 years, and they have the detailed understanding of the supply chain and are in contact with the sawmills on Myanmar. We'll even post quotes saying things like, just so customers know, the current like political situation in Myanmar might be affecting teak prices. And so based on that, those statements, it's hard to imagine that they don't know. Of course, we can't say that for sure. But in cases like that, where they claim to be aware of the supply chain and claim to be aware of the political realities and are aware of the sanctions, continued teak imports really suggest that it's continued and knowing that they just, they don't care. But on the other side of those teak transactions, I think we can see something really interesting is that Myanmar Timber Enterprise, which is the sanctioned entity by the US, doesn't do any of the exporting themselves. So they auction off the eligible teak to smaller trading companies who then proceed to send the teak to the US. This is well-known and well-documented, so at this point, I don't think it's much of an excuse. But what I will say is it's very indicative of the fact that trying to catch these shell companies is a lot like whack-a-mole. It, you know, you take one out and they just keep popping up and proliferating. And so that's kind of an unfortunate reality with, with dealing with this. I mean, even looking at trade data, for example... If I'm conducting a top-down, much more data-oriented analysis of things, it's really hard to say just looking at a random company that has no website if it's military-affiliated or not, because I can be seeing all of these fuel shipments. But, you know, normal people use fuel. Normal businesses use fuel. And if you don't have insider information and knowing that something's connected to the military, you can't automatically make that judgment just because it's fuel in Myanmar. It's a really dangerous analytical assumption to make. And I think that's why uh, this India frontier piece that we did was so interesting because it was one of the few cases where I was looking through oil actually, and I come across a recipient known as the master. If it had been any other shell company, that wouldn't have been weird enough for me to flag that. Because like I said, it could just be a normal company, but the master seemed to be a specifically weird type of recipient. And that prompted me to go ahead and look up the goods description, which I wouldn't have recognized off the bat. It was a whole string of letters, I believe. 
LSHF space HSD, which stands for low sulfur, high flash, high speed diesel, I think. And I don't know what that is off the top of my head. I'm not an oil expert, but because it was such a weird shipment that prompted me to look it up. And according to Barat Petroleum's, you know, product guides, that's Navy grade high speed diesel oil. And so all of a sudden, not saying it's impossible, but it seems much more likely that your average civilian would be purchasing Navy grade diesel fuel. And so then that's what prompted me to look into it further. You know, the number of guests that we have on who who say things along the lines of, well, I'm not going to accuse anyone of criminality, but things look a little bit... There's a pattern forming here. There is a very strong pattern forming here. It's very depressing. Um, and, and I understand that you don't want to you know, make accusations against anyone. We don't want to get into a, a legal <laughs> problem. But there definitely seems to be a lot of people who are looking at a lot of data saying something does not add up. Somebody should have known better. So the, the question then that comes is, you know, and, and I know that you mentioned foreign assets, you know, tracking foreign assets of the military. Are you uh, at C4ADS or people who are doing work similar to yours? Are you able to put this information on the desks of policymakers in governments who can ultimately take action and launch new waves of sanctions against entities that you've identified as as participating in this type of trade? You can certainly get it on their desks or at least their email inboxes. But of course, it's it's hard to say what causes governments to take the actions that they do. I mean, we certainly try our best to have impact and provide information to people that can make these differences. But I think we've all been watching the rounds of sanctions that came out from the US um, for the third coup anniversary. So clearly the US has its own political agenda, but we we do try our best to make sure this information gets out there. And that's why we work with journalist partners and civil society organizations as well. To, to highlight what we can. And I what I will say is these partnerships are also so important because Frontier and the journalist I worked with at Frontier, Allegra Mendelssohn, did such a fantastic job fleshing out the story in a way that our data alone simply couldn't. Because when I was just looking at this and seeing, oh, the master, oh, Navy grade fuel, like we said, I don't want to get in legal trouble. So there's there was no way to confirm who this was going to, and we still weren't able to confirm it was going to the military. But, you know, being able to combine the expertise of a lot of other people of confirming that the master is not an entity, it's not a shell company, it's just a placeholder when you want to not list the consignee. All of these things were things that Frontier Myanmar was able to confirm doing human sourcing. And so as important as this publicly available information is, it's infinitely more valuable when we combine it with the more traditional types of investigation and data types. And I think that's why this, the community of people working and advocating for Myanmar is so, so valuable. And it was much stronger to be able to share this completed article with U.S. Embassy, with government partners, with USAID, with the State Department, with the greater context involved. And so I think that's a position that C4ADS is also unique in that we can help connect our partner data to government actors as well. 
I think, yeah, that, that interaction and the connection of the different puzzle pieces that different people hold is something that is not focused on enough. So it's, it's very good to hear that that is a, a direction you're going in. But speaking of the puzzle pieces, um, some of the countries you've mentioned so far, specifically uh, Russia, China, and India, have have come up multiple times in this in this discussion. I want to focus on on those briefly. We know that Russia and China both have, for their own reasons, in their own ways, supported the junta post coup. But as you say, uh, Chinese trade data not really something that you could readily get. I assume you can't just put in a, a freedom of information request to Beijing. Uh, I assume <laughs> that Russian trade data would not be a lot easier to to access. Have you been able to to gain any insight into the, the interaction between Russia, China and Myanmar, or is the whole triplet just a, a black hole of trade? Well, you would be surprised about Russia. I mean, of course, we have to be careful when it's less official government sources and more on the data leaked side, which is what my understanding of where a lot of Russia tr trade data comes from is. But we do actually have really strong Russian trade data holdings at C4ADS, which I think sets us apart from a lot of other organizations. And I would say that Russia is probably one of the most consistent suppliers of military parts to the junta. I mean, there's some interesting trade going on back and forth. But like you said, China is definitely <laughs> much more of a black hole, which is unfortunate given their constantly shifting stance on ongoing political activity. It would be incredibly interesting to know what over-the-border trade looks like, especially you know, as we hear more and more rumors about overland trade for jet fuel. That's just something that, unfortunately, within trade data, we can't confirm, which is incredibly disappointing. But yeah, it's just one of those things you have to, to try to work around. I mean, you can, to a certain extent, see business activity as conducted by Chinese nationals, given that Within the Myanmar corporate data, it registers officer nationality. So the way we have the data ingested in our internal systems, you can filter to see like how many Chinese-owned companies there are, or even you can see Chinese holding companies from Myanmar-based companies or joint stock companies. So there's a little bit of window there, as well as you know these business owners can appear in leaked data. So I've come across some Chinese passports in the leaked data as well. But yeah, on the, the trade data, China stopped publishing trade data after, I think, late 2010s or something like that. So it's it's really not, not something we have access to anymore. But, you know, their company annual meeting minutes are pretty good. So that's at least one way we can also see about other Chinese business activity going on in Myanmar. Okay, so th there was a little bit there, but not not a huge amount. Um, how about India? Is there any more transparency from the Indian side or is it still pretty difficult to, to see into? India has remarkably good trade data from what I've seen. I mean, it's very accessible across all the third-party data aggregators. and But I think, again, that goes back to this issue of 
if you're not sending things directly to the military and if it's more nebulous goods descriptions that could be for civilian use, it's hard to identify who's actually receiving it. So I think, I mean, a lot of partners have done really good work building out screening lists and like dirty lists of companies that are known to do business with the junta. And that's incredibly valuable in building out our collective knowledge of companies that might be conducting this activity. I think particularly we don't see, at least I haven't been fortunate enough to see a lot of obvious weapons transfers in recent times. I mean, the only exception to that is Russia, but at that point it's, it's kind of common to see, so it, it's less uh, groundbreaking and exciting. But I don't, and I'm I'm honestly not sure why that is. I have the same issue with jet fuel, is that jet fuel does not appear in almost any trade data sets I've looked at. And I've looked at almost all of them, I want to say. It's, it's very bizarre. I don't know if it's being removed, if it's just being obscured, if these descriptions are blank, but it's it's not being captured. And we, we've managed to find a couple of shipments that we're pretty excited about, and I believe Frontier Myanmar will be working on. But beyond that, it's kind of a black hole. I mean, that's fascinating. I, I remember that we did an interview about fuel specifically, and we the the idea was that you couldn't necessarily track the trade data, but you could definitely see that a vessel carrying fuel had entered a specific port, and there are only so many ports in Myanmar that are, that are equipped to be able to to accept um, fuel. The, the difficulty there, of course, was that fuel is a dual-use good, and it's it's almost impossible to determine whether the fuel is actually intended for civilian targets or military targets. And so that's, that's kind of why I'm interested in what you said about the, the naval fuel, because it sounds, although clearly neither of us are experts in fuel, but it sounds like you may actually have found a case of unequivocally um, military purpose fuel being, being sent uh, to the country. So can you, can you go back to that and tell us a little bit more about that discovery? Yeah, so I think a really interesting thing that Frontier was able to find about fuel entering the country is that it's held for 30 days before it's distributed kind of out to its ultimate buyer. So it could be that even if it was just a perfectly normal trader listed as the recipient, they might have no idea where it ends up going because it's held and then eventually shipped off to its end recipient. But I do think that given the circumstances it's it's less likely that an average it's it's not like regular petrol at all so i i do think it's a fairly interesting discovery i wish we had been able to confirm that it was going to end use with the military but i think without any letters or contracts or the firm kind of business data you can never really confirm that but you're absolutely right that, and I, I have a lot of respect for the work that Amnesty has done tracking ship movements, but it's, and it's so important to substantiate with other data factors because, yeah, these, all these ports that accept 
jet fuel also accept other types of fuel as well. So it's really hard to say whether or not what's happening with, with this fuel. And it's it's really interesting too, because even in cases that seem pretty cut and dry, like I've seen in Russian trade data where it's literally a military transaction, it's literally a military only equipment, but they'll still label it for civilian use only. So they they, they do try to make it difficult for us. It, it, uh, it just sounds so strange to me because, you know, here in the civilian world, if if I were on the road and there were a truck in front of me transporting any substance of any level of hazard or danger, and that truck fails to adequately display the fire diamond and, and give me the information that I would need to know, uh, or more importantly, that emergency crews would need to know that, hey, this is a potentially toxic material, this is a potentially flammable material, oxidizing agent, what have you. I mean, that truck driver would be punished, the company would be punished, probably multiple companies along this chain of supply would be punished for, for failing to adequately inform all and sundry that I am moving something that is potentially dangerous. And yet, it sounds to me like we're living in a world where if you're moving the most dangerous goods, the things that are explicitly designed to kill internationally, you can just lie. I mean, it might be hyperbole, but it sounds to me like you could be transporting machine guns and you could still put teddy bears on a bill of lading and no one's no one's going to check and no one's going to, to to say anything. Like maybe I'm taking a particularly pessimistic view here, but it, that's kind of the the image that that you seem to be painting here. Is it is it really that dire, or is there at least some sort of control, that some sort of hard limit over which these countries just would not step? I mean, I think it does come down to jurisdiction. Ultimately, I think that type of thing would be way less likely to fly in the United States, for example. That's why we have Customs and Border Patrol to track down and expose that type of thing. And, you know, our other teams at C4DS work with Customs and Border Patrol to alert them to potential high-risk goods entering the country that shouldn't be. And so, you know, place, there are places that do safeguard against this. And But unfortunately, when you're looking at two countries such as Russia and Myanmar, you know, there might not be that internal protections there. You could be more susceptible to bribes, for example, and more people more likely to look the other way. Although I guess, as we can probably see from the data, there's less incentive to hide military shipments if you are Russia, because no one's going to hold you accountable for it. I think, I mean, I always take a stance of erring on the side of caution because I have to challenge the data that I'm seeing. It's it's incredibly dangerous to make assumptions and rely on things that you can just, just see and taking it for granted, if that makes sense. So I think maybe I also have a more pessimistic view of, of this. I think, again, the system is set up for licit and legal transactions and there are safeguards in place, but uh, not always. And so that's why even crossing like the US-Mexico border, you'll see people get busted all the time trying to, to bring things in, but some people get through. And it's it's just one of those things that 
that really ranges, but we have to be alert for because there are bad things happening in the world and it's our job to try to stop it. And so if we assume a pretty optimistic view of this, that really limits our ability to track it down and capture it. So I'm, I, I know this is going to be like a very awkward thing for you to try to estimate. Uh, I apologize in advance, but is there any quantification of, of what you, through trade analysis and data analysis, have been able to uncover? Like, is there any way to sort of measure whether, you know, the percentage of the trade that's going on or uh, a dollar value of, of the stuff that you can, you can track? Is there any way for you to assess how much of the picture are you seeing? How large a slice of the pie is it that you've been able to, to uncover through this methodology? Or are you just sort of uncovering things in a cave whose edges you can't see and you can't possibly uh, estimate how large the, the whole room is? <laughs> I, I hate to liken myself to being in a cave, but I, <laughs> I do think that it is really hard to tell what percentage of the trade data we're seeing. So for example, for an ongoing investigation I'm working on, we have, we did manage to uncover just a, a very lucky piece of, I think it was Myanmar origin trade data that related to a Chinese entity that we were looking at. And, you know, we had a handful of shipments, but like, I think you're alluding to, we have no idea what percentage of trade that's actually representing between this Chinese entity and the Myanmar military. It could be all of it. It could be just a fraction of it. And that's unfortunately really hard to estimate. So I think we just just keep working with what we have. And even dollar estimates are a little bit hard to deal with because on some trade platforms, they automatically aggregate a dollar value for you based on like other inputted data. So you might not even be seeing a dollar amount that was reported on customs form rather than being estimated by an AI. So they're basically all, all, all trying to make it as hard as possible for us. I'm, I'm just wondering, surely, I mean, maybe not surely, but like does not there exist some sort of document with the dollar value on it? Like it, it seems if I purchase something in the store, I get given a receipt. It, it lists the dollar value at the very least. Uh, I would imagine that if companies are doing trade with one another, especially if it's international trade, somewhere along the line, number one, someone had to estimate the value. Number two, someone had to sign off for the fact that the money was exchanged and that the goods were delivered. And number three, most likely, currency somewhere had to be transformed from one currency to another currency because international trade usually takes place in even a third currency. So wouldn't there exist these types of financial records? Like they, they must exist somewhere. Are you, are you saying that those themselves can be obfuscated or are you saying that you simply cannot gain access to those types of documents? They definitely exist. It's just more of a matter of what goes onto the documentation at customs itself. So it may be required, it may not be required, it might just be the kind of field that you don't fill out when you're, you know, hurrying to get something shipped. There definitely is a value assigned, like you said, with all transactions, but most of these are internal company documents, and unfortunately, given 
that we only deal with publicly available data unless they're publishing and bragging about this somewhere, which it never ceases to amaze me sometimes how self-incriminating people can be on their websites. Um, we just we just don't know for sure. I mean, that's that is that is I don't know. It is quite shocking uh, to, to discover just how easy it is for for massive enterprises to hide this trade, especially considering how significant and how dangerous this 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 trade is um so i'm wondering can you tell us about the next steps can you tell us about anything that you you you're currently working towards or anything that you are hoping to um to be working towards in the near future oh that's a good question i mean i think just trying to keep pushing our methodology clearly i work with a lot of trade data, so fairly, <laughs> I guess, I've gone through a lot of it at this point, um, filtering by all sorts of various HS codes, looking for suspicious buyers or suspicious goods descriptions. I think as as I move forward, I mean, I, I hope for closer partner relationships and working together to combine more leaked data sets and other various methodologies to keep pushing the limits on what we can do because yeah i I don't mean to have painted such a a grim picture of trade data it has provided a lot of valuable information but i think what i'm seeing at this point now three years after the coup is a lot of the obvious things have been revealed other organizations such as justice for myanmar have done really really incredible work exposing a lot of the early and even pre-coup examples of trade shipments that are problematic. So I think moving forward with this is just going to require a lot more innovation in terms of identifying companies of interest, perhaps working to develop some screening lists or building out directors of interest and combining corporate data in a new way. To, to form like screening lists for shell companies and things like that. But I'm, I'm just excited to, I mean, as we progress, we get more trade data and more events keep happening. So it's really a live updating situation, but you know, there's all sorts of data out there, flight data, maritime data, and even, I guess, moving into more fringe things like IP address tracking and things like that. I don't, as, as much as I love trade and we've talked about it I guess, so much on this episode, I I don't want that to be the only thing that informs my investigations. Absolutely. And and for us looking forward, hopefully we will have you uh, back, back on our podcast um, multiple times in the future to discuss the different elements of this and the different types of this. Um, but I think as far as, as this episode is concerned, just to, to get the audience acquainted with C4ADS, get them acquainted with the trade data, I think you've provided a very uh, important, very broad, uh, very informative overview and insight. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you so much for having me on today. I hope this has been informative for people who are listening. I, I really do love talking about this type of thing. I think investigations are both so important and also the coolest thing in the world. So I think to end us off, I just invite everybody listening to think about how many different aspects of society 
interact constantly. And by that, I mean, even just the action of, you know, making a shell company or participating in illicit activity, you have to touch so many points of our legal system. You have to, if you're shipping, for example, ivory to a different country, you have to drive to the port, which will record license plate information, depending on like what country you're in. And then fill out customs records and go through a shipping container, which can be tracked. And then on a boat, which has registered owners and insurers and port agents and sailors. And then it'll arrive in a company country and go to another company and go through this process again. And each one of these points interacts with a different tenant of our legal society that we take for granted every day. And each of these things produce data points. So just, I think, considering how much data we generate on a daily basis through all of our actions and all of our interactions with the rest of society is a truly humbling and phenomenal thing. I mean, every time I think about just how much information we produce on social media, it blows my mind. So yeah, I just encourage people to be cognizant of, you know, there's so much we can find out about organizations, but as about individuals as well. So just not taking that for granted is what I would say. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the current situation is in Myanmar. We're doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And please also consider letting them know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable, and to those who are especially impacted by the military's organized state terror. Any donations given to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, will go to the vulnerable communities being impacted by the coup. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. 
Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan, da, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, 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 ya